Well, hello, friends and lovers of little-known ladies. I'm recording this for you in Bella Roma Italia, which has now gone back into a much more hardcore coronavirus-inspired lockdown. Adam and I actually haven't really done a super hardcore lockdown before. I mean, the Tennessee version of lockdown was pretty laughable at best. And we lived in a more suburban environment anyway. Never underestimate the power of your own backyard to really help you lean into hermit life. Now we're pretty much meant to stay put in our little urban oasis with no private outside space, although we can go for short walks alone. So we can't go for walks together, um, but we can go for like little walks or runs by ourselves. So hopefully that translates to more time for research and therefore better quality episodes for you. Speaking of translation, I went down a serious rabbit hole this morning with our latest subject, Lin Sinyang. Translation is always a tricky, tricky subject when it comes to exploring the sheer diversity of the types of women that I get curious about, and diving into a Chinese historical figure has yielded some pretty interesting sidetracks and even roadblocks. I'm pretty unfamiliar with classical Asian history and literature, and yes, I'm just going to say Asian because that's how limited my knowledge feels. I mean, I did spend five years in Japan as a kid, So I'm marginally more familiar with Japanese history, and when my husband and I went to Korea last year, I read a handful of books on Korean history, which is a nice start, but really not all that much. But aside from just knowing that The Tale of the Genji is probably the oldest novel ever written, and by a woman, I will sneakily add here, I really just didn't know that much about literature from that chunk of the planet. And having done even a cursory dive into it this morning, I can kind of see why that is. Translating a romance language like French or Italian into English, eh, not a huge deal. Grammar and culture are relatively relatable, and even Russian is pretty manageable to translate into English. I mean, I know just enough Russian to begin to understand how limited translations of that beautiful, intense, and deeply emotive language can be, but damn, just trying to find any translations at all of certain Chinese novels is difficult. Finding a translation that feels natural and fluid and I don't know the word I'm really looking for, but connective? Like, not just a literal translation, but translated in such a way that I can maybe hope for a glimpse of the meanings and feelings the author wanted to convey. I mean, that shit's hard. When you think about it, plenty of native English speakers today find, for example, Victorian novels extremely opaque and difficult to understand. So think about that, and then think about adding an extremely difficult language as a barrier, and a distant culture with whom most Westerners have had extremely little contact or contextual education, and then also add centuries of time into the mix, and it's pretty bananas when you think about it. Like, I'm going to be real with you right now and confess that I 100% would become a vampire, purely so I could have unlimited time to try to learn every language and immerse myself in every culture, so that I could read every book and learn every story. But, But... Even then, I despair of the fact that reading something or learning something in a native tongue versus a learned one is always going to be just a touch different. Lose-lose. Anyway, this is all to just continue on the general theme of this podcast, which is turning out to be A, I am probably never going to pronounce anything particularly well, but more importantly, B, I'm going to be talking about a lot of women from a lot of time periods and cultures for which I have a pretty limited context and understanding. I mean, that's why I want to learn about them. And I do love to learn, and I do love to talk, so hopefully this all gets you curious to learn a little more too. I just can't believe that more knowledge, however modest, is ever a bad thing. So here we go. So the book that inspired this long introduction for you all is The Dream of the Red Chamber, one of the four great classical Chinese novels. 
I did end up downloading an English version, by the way, though it's a very literal translation, like I was just talking about, so of course it's rather dense. But the reason I came across the novel is because within it is one of the major retellings of the life of the woman we're going to talk about today, Lin Xinyang, a Chinese woman at the end of the Ming Dynasty period, born in approximately 1629 in the historical Qing province. So it was hard to track down primary or even solid secondary resources about Lin, but I'm pretty sure that most people would agree that Lin Xinyang was an actual person, though accounts of her life vary pretty drastically. This is because, like so many historical figures, her legend after her death grew beyond whatever the facts actually were, and her story became symbolic and allegorical, often retold with ulterior political or social motives for whomever was doing the retelling. I'll go over the basic story that seems roughly accepted about her actual life before diving into some of the subsequent roles her person took on. From her earliest years, Lin Sinyang was highly educated and well-trained in martial arts, so well, in fact, that even at the age of six, she was said to have attracted crowds to watch her practice. Six? <laughs> That's madness. What could I do at six? Maybe a puzzle? No one wants to watch that, though. Anyway. Many also said that her mind and physical prowess were only rivaled by her extreme beauty. Now, she's pretty young at this time, so that's kind of creepy, but whatever. Her father was Lin Shu, a treasury official who was accused of stealing silver. His imprisonment and her family's subsequent disgrace led to her employment as a singing girl. That sounds kind of fun. An alternative version of the story, however, is that her family was quite poor and that her father and entire family died, forcing her into prostitution. However, since there is a resource that calls out her dad by name, that feels pretty legit. Either way, either due to her work as a singing girl or prostitute, or, as one depiction has it, because of a particularly badass martial arts practice session on the banks of the Qinhai River, Lin Xinyang caught the eye of Prince Hang Zhu Chengxi. So Prince Hang brought her to his palace, and there he supposedly asked her to train other palace women, possibly other concubines, in the arts of war and martial arts. Badass. As a whole, they were referred to as the Paint and Rouge Army. This was possibly only supposed to be an entertainment for the prince, but after a few years of drought and famine, a rebel force assembled, which Prince Hang largely ignored and underestimated, which was a huge mistake, as the rebels eventually attacked the city and took the prince hostage. Then, the all-woman army of Lin Xinyang rose to the city's defense, either ultimately freeing the prince from the rebels, or engaging in such an epic last stand that they inspired others to rise up to the defense of their city and free the prince. Either way, Lin Xinyang died in battle in about 1644, which, if you were paying attention, means she would have been about 15 years old. Yeah, okay, let's pause on that for a second. In 15 years, and not even just like in any 15, in her first 15 years of life, and last, that was dark, sorry, in her first 15 years of life, so we can't even really count the first three years anyway, so in like 12 years, Lin Xinyang became a kick-ass martial artist, attracted the attention of a prince, trained a bunch of other women to be warriors, and had a death worthy of the Greeks. Damn. Jialun wrote this quatrain about her death, quote, Fourth Sister Lin was the winsome colonel's name. She was beautiful and gentle, yet her valor none could tame. In King Zhu Wei, her prince to avenge, she threw her life away. The very ground on which she fell is fragrant to this day. 
So, as I mentioned earlier, one thing I find particularly interesting is the relationship between historical figures and the roles that they end up playing in the time period in which their stories are eventually retold. A really obvious and famous example of this might be Dante's Divine Comedy, which is absolutely jam-packed with cameo appearances by historical figures situated in fantastical circumstances to drive certain ethical or moral points home, according to Dante's agenda. This seems to have been the case for Lin Sinyang long after her death. In The Return of the Palace Lady, the historical ghost story and dynastic fall, Judith T. Zeitlin notes that, quote, Zhang makes it clear that his retelling of Lin Sinyang's death is part of a larger government project to rectify the historical record by canonizing the deeds of obscure martyrs. Lin Sinyang's forgotten story is dug up at the instigation of the central authorities as part of a magnanimous and self-aggrandizing gesture of largesse by the present regime toward a stable and safely buried past. This is not an uncommon practice across many cultures in history. I mean, you can literally just look at kind of the hearkening back to the ancient city of Rome um, during Mussolini's rise to power as kind of another example of that. But one thing I found really quirky and interesting about Lin Sinyang's retellings is that, with the exception of the account from The Dream of the Red Chamber, the recountings of Lin Sinyang's life were often told in the format of a ghost story. That's right. The ghost of Lin Sinyang appears, usually to a scholar official called Chen Baoyao, who first sees her in this frightening and aggressive form with a green face and fierce fangs before turning into a stunningly beautiful woman, with whom, obviously, he has sex. I mean, wouldn't you? Yeesh. Yeesh. A worthwhile side Google would actually be to take a peek at the Huli Jing, or fox spirits, who often acted in the role of a succubus in Chinese mythology. In Pu Songling's version of The Haunting of Chen Baoyao by Lin Sinyang, Baoyao's wife actually mistakes Lin Sinyang for such a fox fairy. These tales are really interesting for their strange juxtaposition of Lin Sinyang's virtue and sexuality, her power and vulnerability. And if this line of thinking intrigues you, I can't recommend the article Historiography of Lin Sinyang, Desirability and Virtue in 18th Century China by Louise Edwards Enough. She delves into the interplay of women, virtue, and sexuality in fascinating detail through the lens of Lin Sinyang. One point I took away was the sheer sexual desirability of the unattainable. And I mean, what's more unattainable than a ghost? <laughs> so, ghost stories aside, I just wish I could have found out more about Lin Sinyang's all-woman army. Unfortunately, that didn't seem to be a subject worthy of much note at the time, or in the subsequent retellings, which really focus on Lin Sinyang as a person and as an allegory, which I find puzzling and can probably attribute to my sort of subpar research skills, but despite my inadequacies, I hope you've enjoyed learning a little bit about Lin Sinyang. Here are a few jumping off points for you. Uh, her name? <laughs> Spelled L-I-N-S-I-N-I-A-N-G. Huli Jing. These are the fox spirits I was talking about. H-U-L-I-G-I-N-G. Zhu Cheng Shu. So that's the um, the prince, Prince Hang, his um, title. Uh, Z-H-U-C-H-A-N-G-S-H-U. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.